0: This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes.
1: Hello, everyone. Good evening. My name is Kelsey Moore. I'm a Ph.D. candidate in film and media studies here at Santa Barbara, and I'm thrilled to be here with the director of Manzanar Diverted, Anne Coneco for this post-screening discussion. Welcome, Anne.
0: Thank you. Thank you, UCSB. Yay,
1: so much love. Thank you so much for having me. So, Manson Art Diverted is an independent documentary that you worked on for almost six years. Could you tell us a bit about how this project first started? Ah, uh, yes.
0: <laughs> so, um, this, you know, I feel like it's so fitting to, to talk about this in, in, you know, because it really did... Come about through an, a humanities project right um, it was um, I was invited by a colleague um, Jim Lee, who teaches at um, UCI to be part of this team of scholars to look at um, manzanar in a, kind of an interfaith intercultural way or the not manzanar but really the pilgrimage right and so um there were history scholars, Asian American studies scholars. And then Jim asked me, and I'm like, well, what do you want me to do? And he's like, oh, you're a filmmaker. You can do something. <laughs> and so um, I said, okay, I'll come along. But, and I had just made, you know, I had made, not just, but I had made this other film, um, A Flicker in Eternity, uh, about Stanley Hayami's diary. And I think that um, Jim thought, oh, well, you've been doing this work in this this area, so this might be of interest. I think, but really little, you know, he he probably didn't realize that, I think, for myself, as a Sansei, um, you know, this story, this sort of, the incarceration story, was something that I'd really been kind of hesitant to, 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 to touch because it's there have been so many films, especially around Manzanar. Um, and so I, um, n- maybe not reluctantly, but was, you know, slightly skeptical, like, well, what can I bring to this space that's new, right? And so, um, but through this project, I, 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 I thought, well, I'm really interested in the land, and I'm also really interested in... Um, thinking about maybe these parallels to Native American, you know, experience, right? I I mean, I I vaguely knew of, you know, how the Bureau of Indian Affairs had been, you know, involved with the uh, War Relocation Authority, um, and, you know, had heard stories of how, um, you know, Native Americans had worked at these camps. And of course, I knew that um at poston and at Gila River, especially these ties to Native American you know these nations in that area in Arizona, were very strong, right obviously, all of the camps all of us are on indigenous lands, but those you know those connections were very palpable, so um I think it was really because of these kind of interests that that then you know i started to do research and then re, re was remind, re reminded that um of course this was you know department of water and power land right and um as as someone who you know was born and and raised in los angeles you know this question of water was always really important and um you know to to I mean, even though, of course, I, you know, there's Chinatown. They're all in Cadillac Desert. There's all of these, these, this work that's been done about uh, this water history. But I think it's just so hard for all of us to really grasp how a city 200 miles away can own this whole huge piece of land, mm-hmm. this huge tract of land. And so, I realized then that you know, this was a great opportunity to look at all of these stories together in this place.
1: That's great, that's great. So you mentioned um, the film you did on Stanley Hayami, A Flicker in Eternity, and this also explores the lives of those displaced and incarcerated at the sort of intimately archival way, which I think is such a powerful um, facet of your work. Could you tell us a bit about that film and any connections that you might have discovered between the two?
0: Well, so Stanley... (laughs) So again, I, I feel like Stanley was my... Uh, I I, I really, I feel like as a, you know, a filmmaker, a young filmmaker, I I, I had been sort of reluctant to look at this Japanese American history, maybe because I didn't want to be pigeonholed that way, right? Mm -hmm. I feel like so many of us, there's maybe that expectation that we're supposed to be doing that work. But I realized, well, of course, this is part of my story, right? So I think Stanley allowed me to um, kind of you know, start to, to enter that space, and be able to own that story, right, um, but my attraction to that story, I was invited by Joanne Oppenheim to work on that film, and, um, uh, you know, he, it's such a charming story, he's, he's so charming, right, and I also really looked at it as an opportunity to work with animation to Mm -hmm. sort of make his story come alive, and, um, uh, yeah, that's really my main motivation for making that film, and I feel like because it is, you know, his voiceover, it's 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 much more like a fiction film because it's constructed in sure. that way, and so it, it you know allowed me to sort of you know spread some my wings in a different way uh, in terms of well,
1: formally, I guess. Mm-hmm. So that film obviously focuses on Stanley whereas this film predominantly features women at the forefront of Manzanar and Owens Valley history. And so I'm wondering if you could tell the audience a little bit about how you initially connected with those outside of that sort of pilgrimage space, right? We've obviously got Kathy here, we've got Nancy, we've got Mary. So was this focus on women, both behind and also um, in front of the camera, intentional or at all part of the film's original conception?
0: <laughs> so it's so funny. People always ask that. And then, you know, as when you're trying to raise money for a film, right? You're like, well, what are the grants that I can apply to, right? And we're like, oh, we can apply to chicken and egg, because there are it, all of, you know, most of the main characters are women.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: But it really wasn't, uh, you know, something that I was thinking. It's like, oh, I'm going to make a film about women activists. That was not part of my agenda at all. It was just that it it happened to be that way. And I feel like, that's really a reflection of how women, because I see it everywhere. I don't, it's not just in this space. I see women really involved in environmental justice work, mm-hmm. you know, and I think it's because they care about health and they care about, um, you know, both, I think, emotional, the trauma, the, the trauma of, of, the, of these kinds of violences, um, and, it's, and, and they're caregivers, right? So um, I see that in other spaces where I'm, I have and continue to work. And so um, it's really no accident, but it wasn't a deliberate choice on the outset when I, when I started making this film. Um, so in terms of how this cast of characters sort of became assembled, Kathy... I, you know, was one of those first trips when I was like, oh, I don't know what I'm doing, but, you know, I'll go talk to these people, right? I mean, sort of documentary is, it's a journey to sort of find a story. Even though I had, you know, clearly there are these three communities, there are these stories which have to be somehow, you know, embedded, woven into this this piece. Um, but Kathy um, very generously you know, uh, allowed me to interview her. I, I I got in touch through the superintendent of Manzanar. She's like, oh, talk to Kathy Bancroft. So, um, and we immediately hit it off. I think she she um, she's like, oh, she, you don't know what you're doing. Oh, that's okay, you know. And, and I, I mean, it was also sort of like, it was a conversation, and I think she appreciated that I maybe knew a little bit more than... Um, most people do you know when they ask questions they're they maybe not so informed so I think she really appreciated that and then um and then I kept coming back so and she, so we really became great friends through this process and obviously like Nancy and Mary there it's a small community so everyone knows everyone and sort of the the players are very, you know, it's kind of clear, right? And, and of course, Nancy and Mary are so important to this, you know, there's their father, mm-hmm. Nancy is the mother of Rose. I don't know if you guys all f- could figure that out, but, um, uh, so again, these generations of commitment to this place and to, you know, environmental justice, um, you know, in that family is passed on just as it is in in the Embry family, right, with Sue and Bruce and Monica. So um, those all became these threads that, you know, you know, as we were editing and as the process evolved, it became clear that these were the themes that emerged from this work. Mm-hmm.
1: And so much of the film, right, is based in these sort of intergenerational threads, but it's also accompanied by Um, the archival footage that you kind of interspersed between those testimonies so on a logistical level what was that process like what was you know the archival process like Um, where did these images come from where did you find yourself searching for them so um, everyone always asks about the archive right Um,
0: and it's it's so ironic that the Japanese American history I mean Although Japanese-Americans were not allowed to take cameras into camp, um, the U.S. government took it upon themselves to document this because they were trying to justify what they were doing. So it's very ironic because there is all of this document- documentation by the War Re- Relocation Authority, right? They, they, they hired these photographers, Dorothea Lange, Ansel Adams, Francis Stewart, you know, many, many people, right? Clem Albers, I mean, um, so, you know, I, I have that to thank. And it's it's public archive, so it's not costly. <laughs> so that's always good, right? And then um, there's also the the footage that they, they filmed to sort of justify what they were doing. So um, so the Japanese, and, and because now historically, you know, everyone can agree that this was a bad thing, right? So there's been a lot of care in in really preserving this history. So I feel like with the Japanese American aspect, you know, or that that piece of the story, you know, was uh, easier to assemble. Of course, there's there's you know luminaries like Toyo Miyatake, and you know, and it's very clear from the photographs that his perspective as an incarcerate himself is is clear in the image making. So, you know, we have a few of his images. There's family photographs. As as the camps evolved, um, you know, in, incarcerates were allowed to, to have cameras. I mean, he, his story is amazing because he snuck a lens in. He was a studio photographer in Little Tokyo. He snuck a lens in and he built a camera inside of the camp. And then he kind of got the, uh, you know, I guess the trust of the, you know, Ralph Merritt and those who were running the camp. And so they allowed him to take photographs. And he really took it upon himself to make um, the documentation of Manzanar his work. And I think he had other people working with him. But they had worked something out early on. That it's like, he could set up the shot, but you know, one of the guards would have to actually press the shutter. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, there's so there's that Japanese American um, archive. And obviously because of Stanley, although that was Heart Mountain, I was, you know, sort of film, somewhat familiar with the low, lay of the land with that, right? And then there's, um, and so I think always it's important to try to find Images that haven't been overused or used consistently, because all of these films seem to like they use kind of the same images. So are like, okay, can we find something else, right? Um, but, you know, with the, and, and then in terms of the history of the aqueduct, because again, DWP was really interested in documenting this great engineering feat you know, Mulholland, bringing the wa- you know, this engineering feat where gravity is used to bring it to Los Angeles. There's lots of documentation of that. And, and um, but it's, it's ironic that with the second aqueduct, because I think that there was sort of controversy around it, you know, when DWP, of course, it's, it's kind of expensive to use their archives, so it's like trying to find other sources it was harder. So it almost felt like, oh, they're trying to conceal this history mm-hmm. or sort of hold, hold this history back. Um, in terms of the Native American archive, I mean, again, just as with the Japanese American archive, it's like there are certain images that are, you know, used all the time. And so obviously over this period of time that I was making this film, you sort of learn what those images are. So it's, again, the challenge of trying to find some other images. It was really important to... Um, make sure that there was accuracy in terms of who these people were. So, you know, found images of um, Numu, um, you know, from Paihunadu. Not from, you know, there's a big Paiute community in Nevada, so... Um, and, and, and the, again, the Eastern California Museum was really, really generous and they have an amazing archive. So it's like every time I'd go, well, not every time, but cause I was often shooting, but, you know, as we were getting closer to the end of the film, it's like I, I spent time pouring through and, and found some amazing images. And then of course there's like that archival image, uh, footage of, um, uh, up from this from the boarding school mm-hmm. in Bishop so but you know working with archival material it's this process you think you you find some good things but you know it it takes forever and then you 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 talk to some other people you hear about other things you meet new people who have some other material potentially documents photographs and so it's just like you you keep digging into this space and, and it's through these relationships. I mean, and I think that what's so interesting also is like understanding kind of at an institutional level, like what histories were important at those times and how they wanted to present those histories, right? Mm-hmm. So um, I think those are all things that are kind of
1: revealed through that process. Sure, sure. And I think one of the most amazing things about this film and also one of the ways that it differs from a lot of the sort of previous, you know, documentaries we have seen on places like Manzanar is the way that it constructs time. And so I'm wondering, you know, instead of chronologically following Pai Hunaru's history, we sort of jump back and forth and we weave in and out of these different interrelations and inter- interconnections. And so... Could you speak a little bit more on the film's visual construction and how you, as a filmmaker, tried to balance between all of these archives and different types of media that you're working with here? Um, So
0: it became very very apparent early on that um, the metaphor of water Mm -hmm. was really important, right? Water and land. And, um, you know, documentary... Edit, you know, the documentary editing process, it's always about finding a structure to sort of frame your story, right? So um, it, it was clear to me early on that doing it sort of chronologically was not going to be very interesting. Um, and I think we also kind of, you, you know, we would get this feedback that there's too many characters. And I think there are more characters in it. And it's kind of hard to tell who was who, so we tried to pare back characters and then, you know, make it more of a character-driven story. But it, w- it was very clear that it's not a character-driven film, right? It's, it's this film about this place. These, all of these people are, are kind of the, te- you know, these testimonials really are about this land and this water. And so um, these are things that I intuitively knew but it, it's like through that process that it becomes very clear that, re, that really that is the, the way that this film must be structured, right? So, um, so we, we realized that the, the main character was the land, was the land and the water. And so that's, I think, um, you know, it was to foreground that and use the stories to bring you through this story of this land and, um, you know, I think also with documentary construction and editing, it's, <clears throat> it's, its meaning is made through transitions between ideas, right? It's the juxtaposition or the contrast between different ideas. And so be, particularly because the film, you know, um, is constructed from these three communities, it's like that was very you know, was, was really key in terms of how we would sort of build this story. So, um, and then it's the balance between communities, right? Um, I think that that's very tricky. You know, it, it, it's, like, it, it, you know, it, it's so interesting because like right now I'm working on the cut, the, we're, we're going to have a, a broadcast in July for a, a national broadcast. And so we we have to cut the film down to 52 minutes and 10 seconds. Um, and so, um, but, you know, in thinking about kind of what the essence of the film is, you know, I I, I firmly believe you can edit anything, you can cut it down. Um, but uh, again, it's like trying to find that balance, you know, and I feel like um, it's interesting at the, at the end of the process, we were getting a little pushback from the Japanese American community because they were like we want more Japanese American stories and I was like oh yeah I guess I have maybe it's my own bias against my own community it's like oh we know those stories right um so you know we tried to put bring some of those stories back um and then right now in this cut also um you know, we we we've sort of paired back Nancy and Mary, and then you know, Jen, who's my producer, was like, "Well, it seems like Kathy's. It's it's there's a lot of Kathy now, so it's like, how do we balance? Mm-hmm. So it's but it's this fine tuning of balancing of these stories, um, and and especially because there are these three stories, mm-hmm. right? Um, I mean, obviously, I think given the history, it's not like the settler colonialists, the Rancher story is not the centerpiece at all,
1: but I do feel like they are part of this, this story. So. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so much of the story exists in the film's sound and the ways that it uses music. Um, so, in some moments, sound works to sort of fill the desert and archival images with things like water and laughter and wind. And in other moments, sound recalls the violence of conquest and bombs and even, you know, Sue's cough. Um, Can you tell us a bit about that process, about both scoring the film and using sound throughout the film? Um, I love sound. I love working with sound. I mean, it's kind of
0: ironic because I I have a visual art background. I started out doing photography. But um, I love sound because of its immersive quality and because of how it can transport you through places and through time I think it, it paints imagery. I, I don't know, it was like, I think Ira Glass has that, this comment where he says that you know uh, radio is the most visual medium because it you know, evokes all of these things, right? So um, I, I knew that, again, similarly to, like, in terms of structure, that, that sound was going to help to take us, to transport us through time and so that's really i think how these sound collages um evolved in terms of making these um you know it's it's a gesture to how we can traverse through these different spaces and these different histories um and then in terms of the score um i i was i was talking to someone earlier it it, it it's a it's a Feat that this score was made, you know. I, I actually had these dreams because the score. All of the the composers are based up in the Pacific Northwest. Um, Lori Goldston was somebody I went to college with. Um, she's an amazing cello player. She was actually the the backup cello player for Nirvana on their last tour. Um, and you know, and she was in town once. We I was totally like, uh, um, I I we went to. To Ben Harper's house because he wanted to like, you know, play with her. So I was like, sure, I want to go to Ben <laughs> Harper's house. Um, but so Laurie's somebody I've always really wanted to work with, right? And um, and she's an, she has an immense range, but she, her work is really based in improvisation. So the score was all improvised. Wow. Um, and and it was so I had these dreams of like oh I'm going to go to Seattle and hang out with my friends and then just like you know hang out with the cool musicians playing music right but it was COVID so mm-hmm. we couldn't do that um, but the it you know to to Lori and her team's credit we devised this really interesting way of working and she had um, Matt Chamberlain who is a percussionist. I mean, you can look at his credits. He's, he's done all kinds of, uh, you know, Bob Dylan, you know, anyway, big names. But, um, uh, so he laid down a, a, a percussion track and based off of the rhythms from the temp music that was in the film, and I feel like we had a great temp music, and so he laid down this temp track, uh, you know, so it became kind of like a click track, mm-hmm. and then... Um, she would lay cello over it. Um we had this other artist, uh she's a sound artist, Susie Quazell, who's based up in Seattle, and she laid a bunch of textures and you know, all these great sounds. Um and then uh and then Lori also played some guitar, and then um Alex Miranda, um, who's you know, he's Louis, he's also indigenous, so I feel like he brought a real sensibility to the film, but he plays the imbida, mm-hmm. so it was really this combination of the cello and the imbida, which really I feel like evoked this land, and then and then the shakuhachi was from um, George Abe, who he's he's based in LA. So and then of course most importantly, or not maybe most importantly, but um, very significant are the songs from. Um, you know, the Akamaya group, Sage Romero, who's a, who's a performing artist up in, in Big Pine, very generously shared some songs as well as, you know, there's, there's Cheyenne Stone. There were, there are a few peoples who, who shared songs and, you know, Sage, especially because his, his mother got COVID and passed away. And so he wanted to honor his mother and I was so touched that he let us use her songs. So, I mean, songs are so sacred and, um, you know, I I was really very touched that they that he allowed us to to incorporate them into the film this way. And then, you know, the third person on the composing team is Steve Fisk who, you know, mixed all of these, you know, tracks, all of these disparate tracks together. Um, and it for me it was a really fun process. I mean, I felt it was very creative even though uh, I I would have to listen and listen and listen but
1: it's so amazing how every component of this film is connected to memory in some way mm. and I think that's sort of another idea that's under violence here right so we have um, Kathy and Mary and Nancy they all talk about sort of the importance of memory and you know this idea of outliving the people who remember is part of the LADWP's ploy, or cutting down trees to prevent silent witnesses. Um, at one point, Kathy's aunt even recalls the moment where she realizes that the you know the vanquishment of both peoples is one and the same almost, right? So did you find that many residents of the area were and are aware of these parallel histories, or is that violence against memory still ongoing in the area?
0: I think people, I mean, it depends on the person, right? I mean, obviously the people who I was involved with, I think have an appreciation for this. Um, but then there are those who I think choose not to engage with that past or, you know, or, uh, I, I mean, I think kind of accept the situation, Um but it is ongoing mm-hmm. all of these things are ongoing and it's it's ironic in some ways while i you know there is all of this violence in this place there's always that strange contradiction of the fact that the LADWP owns this land is also why it's not developed oh, yeah. Which is um, you know, have and and right now I'm I'm working in the inland empire, which we were having a conversation early and you said that your family was um from you know, from the inland empire and um Highland, uh which is being, you know, developed for warehouses, right? And and so there's no protection in that way of this land. So um I think about that as I, you know, as I see this rezoning and, um, you know, this ravenous development happening everywhere and all in the name of our logistics industry. So um, I I don't know. I mean, I, I feel like, yes, there are some and there are others, but um, hopefully, I will say that, when we showed this film in Payahunadu, last summer we had a, a tour and, you know, it was really exciting because they were our first in-person screenings so we took it to um, Mono Lake so Lee Vining and Bishop uh, and Big Pine and, and Lone Pine and, you know, I feel like people really came out to see the film and I think that everyone has a different um entry into this history they may know more about one history than another but i feel like most everyone said oh i i, I
1: learned things that i didn't know so yeah.
0: mm-hmm.
1: and the screenings last july marked the um it commemorated the 18 uh, force march and i know 63 63 yeah. sorry <laughs> and i know that um your first sort of work-in-progress screening of this film, right, was at the Manzanar Pilgrimage in 2017. Is that about right? I think so. It yeah. might have
0: been at the Asian American Studies
1: Conference, but anyway, okay. somewhere around there, yeah. So I'm just wondering if you can speak a little bit on the film's own role in sort of these commemoration practices and these uh, practices of memory-making and how these communities have responded to the, to the film and these messages.
0: I think that, you know, people have been very welcoming and I think, you know, they appreciate the work. Um, I think it, it, it's an opportunity for awareness and learning to happen. Um, it's, it's a little strange in that um, I think that the pilgrimage, which is so symbolic and it's so important to be there, you know, hasn't happened for two years and it's not going to happen this year because of COVID again. Mm-hmm. But um, you know, I I I think that these sort of alliances and hopefully re- reflection about memory. I mean, it's a little bit of an esoteric thing, right? Um, that you know, it it it's meaningful in that way, mm-hmm. and that um, it helps to motivate people to be engaged and to. And to reach out to other communities. Mm
1: -hmm. So I've heard both you and Kathy talk about the sort of impact of this film and that one of the film's takeaways is the importance of remembering locally. Mm -hmm. Um, Can you talk a bit more about what that means and how we might put that kind of call into action?
0: So um, we are, as I mentioned, we're having this um, broadcast in July. So one of our impact, you know, ideas is to really encourage people because it will be a national broadcast. Really encourage people across the country to think locally about the forced removals or, you know, relocations of people based on um, environmental racism. Right? Because I think that Native Americans, particularly have been targeted historically, but, you know, communities of color in general. And so that's one aspect. And I think that it's really um, been, you know, it's important to remember what's, what's happening, you know, as the land, this amazing, your amazing land acknowledgement at the beginning, it's like we need to remember those communities, right? And I think it's also an opportunity for people to come together you know, different coalitions, different communities who may not be thinking about these things together have a have an opportunity to think about our, uh, or, or to become engaged because, you know, of, of uh, you know, to think about our environment, right? I think so many times like social justice groups, they don't bring climate change or environmental activism into that, that formula that that space so it's uh you know that's kind of also what we've been really trying to encourage people to do um and you know we also just uh, you know, through through monica who's in the film she works with the sierra club we've just um you know they've agreed to do some screenings and we're yes. we're hoping you know we're going to be using the film to help talk about the the delta um what is it? The the delta. Um, con, what is it? Converge. Con, you know the the what <laughs> tunnel. Thank you. <laughs> Tun, they're still that they've been constructing for a while. Mm-hmm. But I think that again, it's all of these same water issues. So um, you know we're really help, hoping that different communities all over can take the film to talk about these issues that are important to them. I think that there's also ways to think about you know, trauma within, especially communities of color around these issues and um, this inter, you know activism you know, between different generations of, of activists.
1: That's great, I'm so excited that we're all going to see it hopefully in July, right, nationally broadcasted. So looking forward to that. Um, so right now I'm going to turn it over to our wonderful Emily Zinn for a couple of audience questions. If you would please wait until you receive the microphone to ask your questions so we can hear it here on stage. Um, I'll pass it.
2: Hello. All right. Thank you so much, Anne, for a, uh, an amazing film. Right over here.
0: Oh.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yep. And and thanks also, for, uh, Kelsey, for, for facilitating this, this wonderful conversation. The um, I think it was the last or second to last question from Kelsey spoke to... Uh, your response really spoke to how this film speaks to critical issues around environmental justice and climate justice. I also think, and, and you mentioned trauma, I think this film speaks to so many, uh, a whole spectrum of, of key significant national and global cultural conflicts right now, including, of course, the, the so-called debate over critical race theory, which is, as we know, is really an effort to quell any discussion of racism and, and white supremacy, but also I think this, this film powerfully speaks to the, the current um, unprecedented surge in discussions around the possibilities of prison abolition. So I just wondered what you, th- what you think about that, ways in which um, this, this film, this, this cultural product also centers communities that are not always centered in those discussions and what that might speak to.
0: Um. Yes, thank you. Uh, I mean, uh, Uh, groups like Suru for Solidarity uh, um, have really been thinking about carceral spaces. Oh, it fell down. Sorry. I can project. What do you mean? (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, So I I think it's again, I mean, the the film, yes, the film has many reverberations in many ways, Um, And it's just sort of like, well, which path do we go down, right, with the film? But, you know, in terms of the Japanese-American community, there's this organization called Tsuru for Solidarity, and the the incarceration experience of Japanese-Americans, they've really been trying to think about that um, nationally and and thinking about carceral spaces across the board, you know, Prisons, um, You know, the border issues with migrant children, um, sort of these histories of, you know, certainly with Native Americans and Japanese Americans, these spaces where, um, my, you know, for example, my grandfather who was at, at Fort Missoula, you know, that was obviously a place where Native Americans were, you know, it was supposed to protect from Native American, you know, um, invasion like i mean it's their land so anyway but so i think that there are definitely these, these groups there there's work in this play you know in this space to really think about these larger issues critical race theory, uh, you know cri- you know all of these things that um you know hopefully we can bring um to these groups i think it's just about connecting with them and i and i'm optimistic also that um we can hope to take this you know to more of an an, uh, international audience as well we we just got some critical funding from um doc society and they're really interested in in because i think these issues of colonization Really reverberate and and have meaning in many many places, so yeah we're really hoping to to that that all of these different communities who aren't normally seen can also feel empowered to have conversations amongst themselves um, you know I, I, I yeah, I think that there's many many possibilities, so you know for any of you out there who have access or interest we're always looking for collaborators um and hope that people can take it away you know i mean that's essentially why we made this film so
1: i w- i think one of the things that i found most shocking and disturbing was to see the land prior to the water being drawn out of that area and that that painting by Bierstadt of of Lake Owens there. And I go, oh my gosh, this is so shocking. Um, Is there much pictorial
2: or photographic or any kind of visual record of what the land looked like prior to all this water
1: being drawn out of that area? Um,
0: So there's, uh, well, There was documentation, obviously, when they were constructing the LA Aqueduct, right? And so um, I think there's that documentation. It's a little hard to tell because it's black and white photography, maybe how lush it was. Um, There is that Bierstadt painting, which, you know, for those of us who are in the area, we're like, which which angle is he really painting the lake from? I, I, I think that there may not be there there may be some accuracy issues around that. But um, you know there was one uh, there was one ranger at at, at um, Mansonar who was like, which direction was this from? But I, but the, the lushness of the lake maybe is some indication of of how he found it earlier, right? Um, but that's where story is important, you know, because there, there aren't, weren't always cameras there. I mean, I, I, I was looking for images of Camp Independence, for example, and, you know, I, I found that one, you know, the few images of, of the camp, and, and that, of course, was after they had already forced marched uh, the Native Americans out of there. I think it was right before they were closing it down. Um, but uh, so no, I don't think there are very many images. I didn't encounter any, um, but I think that there are stories, and that's you know we we maybe we in our society we you know we depend on these kinds of documentations like photographs, but that's where story is also is an important testament to to our histories. Yeah.
3: Thank you so much for such an amazing film. I, I wonder, uh, what are your recommendations and insights and vision for what you wish to see in water protection? Uh, about two years ago, I was able to travel to North Dakota um, and learn from elders there about the water situation um, and the oil extraction that is happening And I've also been able to have the honor and the privilege to work around a human research sustainable site to restore land and create regenerative practices. And it's happening here, even still to this day, in our backyard in Cuyama Valley, where there's research that shows that domestic municipal water is still not accessible, and yet we continue to extract here in Kuyama, we're extracting groundwater that was predates us, you know, dinosaur age, let's say. And so what is your vision when we, when we speak? You know, you're, you're saying, let's unite fronts. Let's connect with environmental justice organizations and social justice organizations, which are led primarily by BIPOC community. What do you see as something that is still so monopolized, capitalized, and violent? towards our communities knowing that water is what sustains us i really love that imagery that you put of of the elder with the children and saying can you breathe air can you live without air of course we cannot breathe without air the beauty of of restoration of of the elders who were building uh, flowers and the gardens to sustain peace and serenity in their lives among so much violence and so just want to see what your vision is for us
0: with us thank you I, I feel like you have a vision. <laughs> um, I feel like we do need to stop importing water. We need to stop extracting water. Um, it, it's, I don't think people understand how long it takes for water to be cleaned and filtered through the ground. They don't understand that. Um, so, you know, I feel like the in terms of this film, it's my small, you know, gesture to to help inform people to understand how important this issue is, that we can't continue to extract. But really it's also, I think, a larger call to action to really question, you know, development and you know this this rabid consumption that we're so accustomed to, right? Water, we'll just keep, keep pumping water. We'll keep taking it out of the ground. We'll just keep buying more things. We'll just keep building more buildings. I think we really need to question all of that, you know, and um, I think that with, you know, the relationship between Payuhunaru and Los Angeles is the relationship in all urban areas, right? You know, areas that are adjacent to urban areas are extracted for water or extracted for, you know, or their contamination, you know, we're all part of the same, you know, air, 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 what what is it? Um, uh, Anyway, the airflow, air, you know, connects us all. So all of these things people, I think, just need to understand that they have a responsibility and that they can, you know, and these are not things that we can do individually, that we do have to become involved to help change these things collectively. And so that's our government, and I feel like, um, you know, that that's the system that we live in right now. Um, I I do believe that, it, it's it, it's individual because we also have to understand and reckon with who we are in this world now. I mean, that climate change and climate crisis is something that, you know, we have to think about our children, our, our world. I mean, in some ways, maybe we can just say, oh, well, I mean, can we say that, oh, we'll, we'll just use this world up and then we'll move on? I don't think that makes sense, right? So, um but I don't know. I, I mean I, I think it's it's much bigger than all of us, but hopefully um I'm optimistic that, that people can help to figure this out. I don't know. I feel like there's out there there's much smarter people than me. <laughs>